Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and we're back now here on the Opiango line with the last two personal essays from the Boys of Summer. Here now is the Acorn Wars. When I was a young boy growing up in Barry's Bay in the 1960s, there were certain verites or truths that arrived every July 1st and lasted until the end of August. Certain things that were as right as rain and that would work themselves out between the last day of school in June and the first day back in September. For instance, the parish priest at St. Lawrence O'Toole's would usually call my mother that very last Sunday night in June, the one that preceded the first Monday morning mass of the summer holidays. And he'd let her know that the altar boy who was supposed to serve mass that coming week, well, that altar boy needed to skip town to go on a really great holiday. Whatever the story was, it was generally malarkey. I knew the kid just wanted to sleep in. But, in his place, I would be roused at 6.30 a.m. and sent packing down to church without so much as a morsel of breakfast. The story was always the same. Father O'Brien needed just one of Mrs. Conway's six fine lads, all very good altar boys, but he only needed one, just one, to give up his first luxurious summer holiday sleep and instead be sent down to church early the very next morning on an empty stomach. These were the last days of the Latin Mass and three hours of mandatory fasting before receiving Holy Communion, which, as the lone altar boy, who was usually the only other person in the church at that ungodly hour, other than Father O'Brien himself, I was obliged to take First Communion. So no post-alphabet for me until I got back home around 7.30. There was nothing worse, at least to a groggy, sleep-deprived little boy, of having to stand there on that Monday morning in the first week of summer holidays, layered up in a sweltering black woolen satan, buttoned tightly around my neck like some dog collar, and that reached below my running shoes so that it would trip me just to walk in it, and over top a white surplice that made me feel like some prisoner of war sweating out his solitary confinement. Even Steve McQueen didn't have to put up with this in The Great Escape when they threw him in the cooler. Worse than that, if that were possible to believe, I could barely stay awake long enough to voice those incomprehensible answers in Latin that an altar boy was supposed to know. It was a set of Latin responses I had been forced to memorize, but had been given no idea as to what in tarnation the words actually meant, all while my stomach growled and turned somersaults eating itself inside out. Thank God there was rarely anybody else attending Mass. My stomach often seemed louder than my Latin answers, as its strange noises seemed to reverberate off the empty choir loft. The second verity of summer was that, of the twelve weeks of holidays, I'd be the lucky winner of that 6.30 a.m. altar boy lottery almost every week. Every summer, year after year, from when I was first trained by Sister Mildred in grade four to cough up that infernal Latin, Confitier Deo, Omnipotente, Hallelujah, something or other, crash pads, landing pads, love you, amen, brother. After a while, the priest, Father O'Brien, didn't even have to ask. We all just knew any assigned altar boy with any brains would be AWOL. And so there I'd be serving Mass in an empty church all summer long because everybody on the altar knew the Conway boys were buggers for punishment and could be counted on to pick up the slack whenever the slackers pretended to leave town for a holiday. But really, I knew they only wanted to sleep in like any sane boy of summer. 
In a way, I didn't begrudge them. Actually, I kind of admired them. Still, the third, final, and most important verite for all boys of summer in those days fifty-odd years ago in Barry's Bay was that no matter what happened or how many irreligious or heretical thoughts I might come up with between 6.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m. every weekday summer morning, I knew I'd get to work out all of my church frustrations at the end of every summer in what was known by all boys all over Barry's Bay as the Acorn War. It was glorious. If the Duke of Wellington really believed the Battle of Waterloo was first fought on the playing fields of Eton, then the boys of summer all over Barry's Bay certainly discovered their real characters were forged by how they behaved during those infamous acorn wars of mid to late August. For a bunch of kids who couldn't organize a riot, it was amazing how well word spread like lightning that the acorns had finally dropped, announcing it to each other as if the queen had just popped out her firstborn son, the next king of England. Indeed, rough battle lines were immediately drawn, and all available boys were drafted right down to any pint-sized manpower that could be bamboozled and pressed into service. Dozens upon dozens of slingshots were then immediately made, using only the best available technologies that could be cut from young trees with a great-looking Y branch and a spare inner tube, some not necessarily yet ruined with a puncture. They were all fashioned into handheld catapults that our generals said would befit the War of Roses, whatever that was. So with bulging pockets full of freshly fallen acorns, if not the occasional piece of jagged gravel, in case we ran out of good acorns, we were all off for a rendezvous point at either the western or southern front. The acorn wars were roughly organized along those two distinct locations. No mention was ever made in the Jungle Telegraph of a northern or an eastern front, though word would eventually get to us every autumn in our schoolyard that some exotic acorn battle had occurred in the east end of town below St. Lawrence O'Toole's or in the north end up by Sandy Hill. But since we never participated in any of those shenanigans and we saw no prisoners taken or no booty paraded downtown at the post office, we assumed, like Stalingrad or the Long March in China, those mythical stories of other fronts may have happened, but not in our watch, so not part of our war. On the other hand, all through each autumn, the schoolyard would be full of harrowing stories of what had happened that August on the western front that ran behind Murray Daly's house all the way over the hill through the forest to Donald Murray's house, Duck's Place. Of course, it took in Kate's Field, next door to Murray's planer yard, and along the railroad tracks and nearly all the evergreens and rockery to the western edge of Dowdle Murray's home. Sometimes it went even further, behind the lines involving raids in and around the jungle pond. Of course, the boys of summer would have to be paired off into two competing armies if a real acorn war was to get underway. How that was done was something that buck privates like myself knew little about until after the fact. It was a mysterious, if not sacred and secret rite, belonging to and known only to the older boys, our generals. But we assumed it was very different from the selection system used for picking teams for a pickup baseball game, where the self-elected captains, who also became the self-elected generals in our acorn wars, often lorded it over us. If it was picking baseball teams, those captains met at what passed for a home plate, and using the handle of a baseball bat to figure out who got to pick first and second. Then they selected their friends and enough ringers as they both thought fair, leaving, of course, the shamefully untalented, including younger brothers and sundry pint-sized dregs, for the sordid final selection. 
That final selection usually involved a lot of eeny, meeny, miny, moe with various threats and recriminations involving mothers. If you don't pick me, I'll tell Ma, and then you'll be in real big trouble, mister. Picking armies for the annual Acorn War was a very different, highly delicate, if not tribal matter. Nobody ever saw the selection process, which must have been held at some secret parlay point that none but our generals ever knew about. All I knew is that no Acorn War ever started at a particular time, and there was never any fixed location, and if the truth must be known, nobody was really certain who was on what side. The generals knew who was supposed to be on what side and roughly when and where the conflict was to commence. And that was enough. At least that's what we believed, but we were never allowed to question. We were simply there to do or die, but try not to die. It was our job to make the other side die. All we really knew for certain was that we were supposed to be born to take orders, or so we had been told by our parents and teachers, and so part of the fun was just showing up and being told by somebody older than you in which general direction we might find a nameless enemy, which we dutifully did, no questions asked. If it was an acorn war on the southern front, things worked pretty much the same. The Gettysburg of that location ran from behind Danny Murray's over the hill to where the Valley Manor would eventually be built, and all the way east, downhill over Stafford Mountain, to a dangerous collection of what we were always told was a doubly dangerous ridge of poison sumac overlooking the Girl Street. But the armies we fought on the southern front were often very different. On the Western Front, our own army of slingshot-totting boys would be made up mostly of Conway's, Daly's, and Murray's, with maybe a few Nicholson's thrown in for good measure, while our enemy army would be drawn from the Shushaks, the Kulises, the Anthas, and the Galkas. Of course, we were mostly all friends during the regular school year, and we played on the same Little League baseball and peewee hockey teams. So there was more than a little bit of Benedict Arnold activity expected when somebody wanted to betray us and join the other side. Such was the fortunes of the Acorn Wars every summer. On the southern front, our army tended to be more Conways, with fewer Murrays, but different Murray and Conway cousins, and practically no Daly's or Nicholson's, and maybe a few Kelly's thrown in for good measure. Our enemy army on the southern front, however, was usually drawn from Asheville, out by the St. Francis Memorial Hospital, and that army was more often than not made up of those ferocious-looking Shallas, Mass, Katoskis, and Dabrowskis. Kids with nicknames like Brutus, Sammy, and that very scary piss pants. Then, of course, there were the notorious Klovcheski brothers, always hard to pin down, partly due, no doubt, to living next door to some of the Murrays and Conways. But apparently, or so we were told, they also had blood ties with the good folks of Asheville. Sometimes, for instance, Gilbert Klovcheski, or as he was known far and wide in the Acorn Wars as Johnny Gueva, sometimes he was with us, and sometimes he was against us. Either way, he was always known to be a fearsome combatant in the Acorn Wars. Well, the rest of us showed up with our freshly minted slingshots, with the requisite five pounds of acorns uh, mixed with a bit of gravel bursting out of every pocket. Johnny would often show up with a very large machete that scared the bejesus out of everybody. With it, he would cut down any available alders as big as fishing poles and heave them at his enemies with seemingly careless precision, yet always accompanied by a blood-curdling scream that was sure to send both sides running for cover. Honestly, the first time I saw Johnny Gueva fighting for the Asheville Army, it was like watching King Kong coming through the jungle back at Danny Murray's, where we were all hiding out at our fort. Of course, there were always forts involved, and sometimes built up in the trees or in some hidden gorge. But no matter where it was, its interior walls were expected to be covered with the poor boy's playboy, the lingerie section from the Eaton's or Sears catalogue. 
Inside those forts, each army kept its secret stash of valuable junk, the sort of stuff that, if the fort was ever captured by the enemy, it would surely be found out in some not-so-secret compartment. And under the regular terms of warfare, the enemy was then free to run off with any hidden treasure. A pack of cigarettes, a rare hockey trading card, a fully loaded shotgun shell, half a pack of leftover firecrackers, maybe even a rare comic book our parents had banned us from ever reading. Such were the valuable commodities of boyhood barter and trade that only someone of 10 or 12 years of age would consider worth hiding, as if some precious metal more valuable than gold. How we actually managed to get anything like those two armies of marauding boys to find each other in a fairly large forest was beyond me. That's what we needed the generals for, I suppose. I remember spending more time on the hunt for the enemy than actually engaging the enemy, while often imagining wrongly that we had heard them in the distance, then shushing everybody and crawling for 10 or 15 minutes on our bellies through the disgusting dewy ferns and crackling dead leaves, infested with ants and black beetles, the latter often dead from the previous autumn, yet all the time thinking of ourselves as Vic Morrow from Combat or Steve McQueen in Dead or Alive. Sometimes it would take hours to find those sneaky West End Golkas and Yanthas or that shallower mask crew from Asheville, but it never seemed to bother us. Sometimes we knew intuitively that they probably just got called back by their mothers to do some emergency chores. Sometimes they just got distracted. Maybe they found a rabbit or a frog worth chasing, if only to capture it and try to blow it up with a firecracker. Still... This was real war, and real soldiers never complained about the sheer boredom of waiting to engage the enemy as we all slithered along under a canopy of wet branches, pretending to be hard at work doing the things real men do. Plenty of time to gripe when we were back at the fort. But it never ceased to amaze us that as soon as somebody mentioned the word fort, lo and behold, we would hear a hell of a racket coming from behind our lines, as if somehow the enemy had managed to sneak by us on either flank. We would instantly all stand up and all grow terrified that back at our fort the enemy was looking through our stuff, our stash, ransacking the place, looking for our secret compartment, and knowing our own collective stupidity, they would probably find it. Honestly, we didn't mind if they'd smashed the place up. That was expected and could be easily fixed with a few rusty nails and some broken pallet lumber from behind the dairy bar or Murray's store. But if they got hold of that hockey card or that loaded shotgun shell we were hoping to explode with a hammer... Well, that was next door to a tragedy. Sure enough, it would take no more than a few seconds after somebody whispered the word fort that we discovered we'd been outflanked, and just as suddenly we'd see Johnny Gueva war-hooping down the hill, flying past us like some madman, yielding his machete, cutting alders to beat the band, and throwing them at our fort like there was no tomorrow. Yet somehow, in all of his very dramatic presentation befitting a later-day Mel Gibson and Braveheart, we always knew Johnny would never actually hurt us. In fact, given these annual acorn wars, I never heard of anyone breaking an arm, losing an eye, needing a stitch, losing a tooth, or requiring an emergency room visit. That stuff only happened back in the schoolyard. Remarkable when you think of it, given that in those acorn wars, we were all about as restrained as those wackos that William Golding wrote about in The Lord of the Flies. In fact, the blood and the gore that we threatened our enemies with, epitomized best by the terror that Johnny Gueva inspired in all of us with that huge machete. But when push came to shove, we all knew nobody ever really wanted to hurt each other. But that's not to say we didn't engage in some wicked Mexican standoffs. I remember one time when my brother Kevin and I suddenly came upon two enemy combatants, Robert Yantha and Sylvester Shushak, a.k.a. Kid Colt. They had appeared as if out of nowhere, 
And so all four of us jerked up our slingshots immediately, and we remained in that position, locked and loaded, for what seemed like hours. Threateningly, we studied each other's squinting eyes and those dangerous projectiles that actually occupied the pockets of each of our slingshots, all dangerously pointed at each other and all ready to be let go with just one wrong move. But of course, kid being kid, namely a huge aficionado of Saturday afternoon westerns and war movies, he suddenly added his own movie soundtrack. Da-da-da-da! It sounded like Beethoven's fifth, but we all knew what he meant. It was the music that most certainly must have accompanied Wyatt and Virgil Earp as they walked into the O.K. Corral to meet the Clanton boys. At that very moment, we all wanted to compliment Kid for his musical je ne sais quoi. But after all, we were in the middle of a Mexican standoff, so it was no time to talk. We all knew the code of Clint Eastwood's spaghetti westerns and those immortal words spoken by Eli Wallach. Don't talk! Shoot! Yet, had any one of us accidentally let rip from our slingshots... Somebody would have lost an eye. Instead, we all just shifted in our running shoes and continued to stare meanly at each other, waiting for somebody to say uncle. I can tell you, not so much by Scout's honor, but as a ten-year-old who was an eyewitness to that Mexican standoff, it seemed as real and tense and as prolonged as anything we ever experienced during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yet Kid Colt, being an exceptionally talented fellow whose blood-curdling screams could peel the skin off Boris Karloff at a hundred paces, it was he who essentially controlled the drama of that confrontation. It wouldn't be over until he allowed the moment of sheer terror to pass. But for all of our seeming animosity and mimicry of war and western movies we had seen, we also knew that my brother... Kevin and Robert were good friends, or that it would come as no surprise a few years later when Kid wanted to go to the high school graduation. He turned to Kevin at the last minute to loan him a suit, which Kevin gladly did. Not exactly the stuff that makes for bitter acorn war enemies. So it was no surprise that Kid Colt turned out to be the maestro of these best moments we all remembered from our movie-inspired acorn wars. He had such stage presence such intelligence and genuine great good humor. And boy, did he know how to quote our favorite Sunday matinee idols and look the part while doing it. Nor could anybody else ever smile such an evil bad guy smile, only to break out into an insane giddy laugh. Nor could anyone else mimic Beethoven's fifth. We all probably looked and sounded like those vicious kids from The Lord of the Flies, but honestly, I don't remember anybody getting hurt during those acorn wars. That's not to say we wouldn't get a zinger or two off during those August maneuvers. There were more than a few pieces of jagged gravel or some particularly nasty acorns with a very hard pimple at its bottom that hit our tender bottoms as we often hightailed it like cowards back to our forts. But those well-aimed shots at our rumps were all well justified, given the strict code of military honor that we all resolutely swore to. Indeed, there was more than a few cowardly buttock wells that arose when we compared our battle scars, often back at each other's forts, if we were taken prisoners, or more likely if we just wanted a smoke break. It was a time when we all seemed to be experimenting with such things as birch bark and dry pine needles that we tried to fashion into some kind of roll-your-own-cigarette that nobody in their right mind should ever light up, not if you wanted to be smart enough to avoid swallowing a fireball, which apparently was something most of us had tried. Many of us tried those fireballs at least once. In fact, I did alongside my sworn enemies, Brutus and John Mask and Sammy Nebrowski. But that was after the Acorn Wars were over for that summer, and we got back to the serious business of learning how to really smoke in earnest. We were now all seasoned veterans of Acorn Wars, so pretending to smoke seemed a little like reading comic books. It was starting to get old. 
If the Acorn Wars had started out as the real McCoy, by the time grade school was coming to an end, we were getting ready to graduate from smoking dried dandelions wrapped in wet cardboard that was often peeled off Brutus's fort walls, insulated with old corrugated boxes. It was just getting passé. Indeed, as those acorn wars began to die out in all but memory as we grew older, we acknowledged as friends going to high school that those war games were never about real violence. It was all about play-acting, pretending that we were men capable of real blood revenge. Even if we did sometimes get into real schoolyard fights, or used to throw more than a few real punches after watching a Saturday matinee, it was only in hopes of emulating those icons of male testosterone manufactured by Hollywood. No, what the Acorn Wars really were about was learning how to craft stone-aged weapons, aspiring to make the perfect slingshot, or engineer a tree fort with battery-powered electric lights or a camouflage trap door that successfully did manage to hide your secret stash. Most importantly, those Acorn Wars were about learning, if unwittingly, through no teacher other than the experience of childhood freedom itself, but learning those necessary strategies of teamwork and communal trust, if not individual mercy, befitting not so much the Battle of Waterloo or the playing fields of Eton, but something worthy of Stafford Mountain and Cates Field and all those childhood battlefields that still litter our dark druidical forests surrounding Barry's Bay. That was The Acorn Wars, written and read by Barry Conway. Our final personal essay, based on what it was like to grow up in Barry's Bay in the 1960s and early 1970s, is called Stafford Mountain Starlight. And for those of you who may not know it, that large hill in the center of Barry's Bay that is topped by the town's water tower was actually named Stafford Mountain sometime before 1910. It was given that name in honor of one of Barry's Bay's founding fathers, Frank Stafford. If the things we carry sometimes take us 50 years to find, if not understand, the same is often true of the things we do. Sometimes it takes 50 years to sort out why we did or did not do something. Take my high school graduation from Madawaska Valley District High School in June 1973. I was 18 years old and for some reason I declined the gracious offer of being class valedictorian. I refused to attend the formal dance the night before graduation and I simply failed to show up for the ceremony the next day. In a word, I went AWOL. Why, as my father might say, would a nitwit do a damn fool thing like that? Not that he himself was fond of attending public events. Although, to be honest, much like those kids in grade 9 who really don't want to be caught trick-or-treating on Halloween... I knew there was always the possibility for a last-minute change of heart and that I might actually end up going to my graduation. Still, it made no sense to a lot of people, namely my 30 or so grade 13 classmates who would be attending that 1973 graduation. I really didn't know how to explain it to them back then, so I didn't really try. Indeed, it's taken me nearly 50 years to come up with an honest answer, and even now I'm not quite certain if I know the whole truth and nothing but. The short answer? I really didn't want to graduate. I loved that last year of high school so much that I never wanted it to end. By not attending my own graduation, it might never really come to an end. I could carry on as if I could stay in high school forever. It's not such a ridiculous notion. After spending 15 years living in the United States, it still amazes me how many of our American cousins never really want to leave high school behind them. Many are caught in what amounts to perpetual adolescence. Just watch a couple of American movies or primetime television. It's as if nobody can get past their senior year. 
Still, even admitting that I didn't want high school to end is not really a full or honest answer. In a way, it had nothing to do with high school. It had everything to do with discovering the unique character of the rugged landscape that surrounds Barry's Bay, and the even more rugged characters that I really didn't want to give up, and I knew I would have to if I ever graduated and went off to university, to a life and career that would almost certainly take and keep me far away. It was what was expected of me, and I knew that career would probably never let me return until it was much too late. It's hard to explain, but I'll try. It starts with an award I did receive at my high school graduation, even though I wasn't there, but I still hold very dear. A book prize awarded for the most improved grade 13 student. Which on the surface sounds great, until the smart money figures out that you only get that award if you've been a really lousy student up to that point. Which I readily admit. Take grade 9 typing. My teacher, Pearl Orr, took me aside and told me with a straight face that when it came time to do the final in-class typing exam, I would improve my grade immensely if I simply didn't type. How so, you ask? Well, in typing class, Pearl subtracted a student's typing errors, spelling and spacing errors, from their typing speed. Say a couple of typos subtracted from 25 words a minute would get most students a passing grade. I, on the other hand, typed at the blistering rate of negative 150 words a minute. No matter how fast I pretended to be typing, the humongous number of errors always reduced my lightning speed to well below absolute failure. So logic told Pearl that if I did nothing during the final exam other than sit in my hands, I would score zero with no errors, a great improvement over negative 150 words a minute. It gets worse. Near the end of the term, Pearl gave the class a test based on using the tab bar in which we had to arrange all sorts of columns on a typewritten page. My work was so bad, I ended up rifling through the garbage cans near Joanne Billings, Doreen Yakabuski, and Kathy Lynch so I could steal their throwaways and submit them for my final assignment. I think Pearl must have known, but she let me pass. Barely. Years later, when I met Mrs. Orrin Berry's Bay and she asked what career I had chosen, she almost fell over when I told her I was a journalist working in the national media. Doesn't that require typing skills? she asked. Apparently not, was my sheepish answer. Apparently, in Canada, if you type better than a crazed monkey, they are obliged to let you into the National Press Corps. Pearl just wandered off, scratching her head. Things didn't get any better during the rest of my first four years in high school. Instead of typing my assignments, I would submit them handwritten. Mr. McNamee, Mr. Weens, Mr. Carter, even Ray St. John, the vice principal who taught me Canadian history, all of them at one time or another took me aside and said, my handwriting was utterly illegible. One teacher, who shall remain nameless, asked me if my horrendously bad spelling was some kind of inside joke, or was it simply an attempt to match my horrendously bad handwriting? Strangely, none of them ever complained about the content of my ideas, even though I had often failed to communicate those ideas in detail. One teacher even told me that reading one of my essays was like trying to catch a slippery salmon in a very, very muddy stream with his bare hands. So, in grade 10, I scored an A-plus in Mr. Montgomery's history class. But next term, barely avoided flunking out in another history course with a different teacher who gave me a marginal pass of 52. Such wildly divergent grades in subjects like history depended upon whether or not an individual teacher took the considerable time and trouble to get past my nearly total failure to communicate. Still, they all wanted to know why I just didn't type my assignments. They obviously had never spoken about me to Pearl Orr. My horrendously bad typing, handwriting, and spelling in high school, however, were only recent iterations of my many earlier failures to communicate throughout my life in primary school. 
When I was in grade seven, I developed a significant speech impediment, a stutter so bad I simply stopped talking for months on end. That, of course, was when my real character started to emerge, thanks to my father. Francis Conway was not a man of many words himself, but in his own curious way he cared and loved his children in ways that even now still amazes me. Whereas my mother treated her children with her patented iron-fisted rule of equality for all above all else, Francis Conway knew that sometimes it does a body no good to treat them equally. Sometimes you just have to give a kid what they need when they need it. So when my stutter became obvious to my parents, Francis finally sat me down. He knew I loved being outdoors, and I would have loved to have gone camping, or better still, go on an overnight canoe trip. But that was not in the cards, so he did what he could. He handed me the LeBaron Sporting Goods catalog. It came to our house every year from a mail-order store in Montreal, and from it my father would often order his fishing tackle. When he was finished with those catalogs, I would spend countless hours looking at their shabby black-and-white sketches of a thousand and one tents that they offered for mail-order sale. So there I was. Francis hands me his LeBaron catalog after he sat me down, and he tells me to pick out a small tent that I might like. Without batting an eyelash, I turned to a page... I knew that catalog inside and out by that time, and I pointed to a tent more impressive than the Taj Mahal. It cost $29.95. Francis said nothing, looked away for a moment, and then looked at me with that peculiar man-o-man smoke Roy Tan expression of his, pressing his lips together as if he wanted to think for a few more moments about what he wanted to say, or maybe to figure out whether or not he could afford that tent. And then, being always a man of few words, he took longer thinking about what he was going to say than actually saying it. Stop that confounded stuttering, and you can have that tent, he finally blurted out. It was all I needed to hear. His idea was better than the best medical specialist money could buy. Immediately I went to work as if it was another of those intractable scientific problems I had confronted before, like how the heck did that nuclear blast shield actually work during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962? My father laid out his twenty-nine ninety-five bet on me that I could figure it out. It was in January or February of 1967, so I only had a couple of months to solve my problem before I hoped to go camping in my new tent in the backyard. I was a boy of measured desire. Camping beyond my backyard would come later in life, but no need to push it, especially as my father and I both knew my mother, as it was, would not be too keen on having me sleep in the backyard during the summer, given the occasional town drunk who would sometimes stumble through, howling at a midnight moon and almost waking up our household, dead to the world, except for me, who was wide awake. Suffice it to say, it took me several months to figure out my two worst enemies when it came to stuttering, having to talk on a telephone and too many sleepless nights. The telephone wasn't a big problem. I went from rarely using it to never using it. And like my typing grade, my noticeable stuttering dropped off greatly. As for my chronic lack of sleep, that took a bit more work. I simply would spend too many nights staying up till the wee hours of the morning listening to my transistor radio, which had a shortwave band. So whenever I got bored listening to Larry Glick's all-night talk show at WBZ Boston or the hillbilly music at WWVA Wheeling, West Virginia, I kid you not... AM radio in Barry's Bay back in the day of the 50,000-watt Westinghouse station south of the border was that good. Anyway, early on I noticed my stuttering really got bad in morning classes when I was barely half awake. But by mid-afternoon, I got a lot better. Then it took a nosedive later in the evening. Problem solved. Almost overnight, I began staying very quiet in the mornings and did most of my talking between noon and supper time. Before and after that, I was one very quiet little puppy. 
all to say by the time I graduated grade seven, I was already sleeping overnight in my backyard tent, an activity I continued to do until I left for university, which brings me back to my high school graduation. For several years leading up to it, I would spend every summer in my tent out in the backyard, staying up half the night, watching all the wondrous things that go on in the night sky above Barry's Bay during summer holidays. Jet planes zooming overhead, satellites keeping to their orbits, the moon changing its face every night, and the stars, the stars all arrayed in those fascinating constellations. They all provided me with infinite enjoyment. Even the occasional storm cloud or lonely owl who sometimes wanted to talk to me at three o'clock in the morning. I'd be there for that, along with my transistor radio with its shortwave band, so I could listen to the BBC World Service, Radio Havana, Deutsche Welle, and a lot of other very crazy stuff that kept me awake half the night. In a strange way, those summer nights in my tent were a great counterpart to my paper route. I loved spending every evening delivering papers all over town, especially along the edges of town, down by the lake shore, past St. Hedrick's graveyard, all through Asheville, up over Stafford Mountain toward Danny Murray's and Jack Billings' homes, past the old arena, we called it the old gray lady, up to Dowdle Murray's, over to the planter yard, down the railroad track to Joe Drago's and Ernie Dudak's, back down through the ravine, across the Sherwood, and up to the old train station where Jackie Beach still worked, and finally over to Charlie Murray's, where I could be certain of hearing a great wild story. Besides at one time paying for his star weekly with a coconut, Charlie would tell me the wildest things about how he used to go fishing with Ernest Hemingway, about how the Susquehanna Hat Company used to operate out of Algonquin Park, the sort of things only an old man like he and Floyd Bentley, both with wild imaginations and a young boy with an even wilder imagination, would believe is the gospel truth, at least for the first 30 or 40 years. Sometimes, though, when I picked up my daily bundle of Toronto stars that was dropped off by bus at 5.45 p.m. as it stopped at the Barry's Bay Dairy Bar, sometimes I would be shipped an extra newspaper or two. If I could sell them, I got to keep all the cash. And so I'd usually look for Roy Coolis, who was often sitting on the steps outside his father Slim's main store clothing store, just having a cigarette and watching the streetlight pass him by. Or I head over to Jack Fitzgerald's store to find his son John. I never really understood why Roy and John, who were at least 20, if not 30 years old then, both seemed to take great pity on my work as a paper boy, so both became rather soft touches for buying up those extra newspapers. It was especially during those cold winter nights when it gets dark around 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening, and I'd spend a couple of hours every night trudging along my paper route that I discovered the true joy of growing up in Barry's Bay. It was a time when I started noticing how the world really works, how people get home after work and how they would start shuttering up their houses to the cold, how the chimney in one house always produced a different kind of smoke from the one next door, or how a family could be all holed up in a small number of rooms and yet not really talk to one another. Often as I passed their kitchen or living room, living room windows to come to the side door to hand them their newspapers, I would see families inside, kids doing homework on the kitchen table, moms or older sisters always doing the dishes without any help from the boys or their dads. And as the 1960s got older, most men stopped listening to their radios at home and just sat silently watching their TVs. That is until I showed up at the newspaper. After a few grunts and a groan at the side door, they usually settled in and hid their faces behind the sports pages. It's something that I think only happens to paper boys. We find ourselves getting very protective of the privacy we seem to be invading every night, walking past those same hundred or so homes. We start caring about everything that happens to those people inside. It's not that we're nosy. 
It's that we just want everyone to get along with their lives, and we know if you spend any time at all reading newspapers or noticing what goes on in a village, it's not a good idea to take for granted anybody's happiness. I learned that lesson with Terry Luckasavage, as I would with John Fitzgerald, who died in a fire only a few hours after I sold him an extra newspaper one summer night. I used to find him upstairs on his back deck, having a beer, but as soon as he saw me coming up the back stairs, I didn't even have to ask. Sure, kid, he'd say, with a big smile, if not a big swig of his brown stubby-nosed beer bottle. And, when he eventually got around to offering me one of his tailor-made cigarettes after I told him I was trying to learn how to smoke, I took it. After that, every time I saw him on his back deck, he'd tell me to take a load off his floor, and we'd just sit there and talk for a while. I can't remember exactly about what, and I know I couldn't stay very long, maybe only for as long as it took me to smoke a cigarette, but I can still see his smile and hear his quiet, gentle laugh. It's, it's funny how the death of only a few people you know can affect you when you were very young. Lots of people died when I was growing up, and I served more than my fair share of funerals during the 60s as an altar boy at St. Lawrence O'Toole's. But I only remember and care about the people I knew face to face. Take John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the President of the United States. Never met the man, but I do remember the day he was assassinated, but only because of the effect his death had on four or five of my Star Weekly customers. It was Friday, just after lunch. I was in grade four in one of those split classes where I only had to go to school from 7.30 in the morning to 12.30 at noon. As soon as school let out, I'd run home, take the shortcut over Stafford Mountain, slam down a gravy sandwich with a glass of milk, and then after a short while building fake campfires in the basement, I'd head out to deliver those three dozen customers spread out all over town. On that particular Friday, November 22nd, 1963, there was definitely something very different going on. By the time I got to Jack Billings's house, sometime after 1.30, Bernice came to the front door and she was all in tears. She couldn't talk, so she just paid me, took the Star Weekly, and walked back into her kitchen, presumably to listen to something on the radio. So I moved up to Danny Murray's. The maid was there that day, but she was also all in tears, blubbering away. She paid me, took the magazine without saying a word, and went back to watching the TV. Then it was back down the hill, but as I passed the Bernaski house, I saw Mrs. Bernaski rush out her front door, all in tears, and head across the street to Bernice Billings's place. Nothing made sense. I thought the whole town must be going crazy. Something was terribly wrong if all these women were crying. So when I arrived at Wilfred Murray's house, I wanted to ask Rita what the heck was going on. She had a little radio on top of her kitchen fridge, but she too stood there looking at it, crying. She paid me as silently as she could, but kept looking at the radio. And that's when I heard a man on the radio say, President Kennedy had died at 1 p.m. Central Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I didn't know what to say or do. I was only in grade four, but I had seen Cliff Robertson portray JFK in one of my favorite movies, PT-109. Stunned, I simply left Mrs. Murray's house and took the shortcut over Stafford Mountain and sat down at the top of the hill overlooking the Girl Street long before it became Dunn Street. I don't know how long I sat there just looking down over the town and thinking the world really was a crazy and dangerous place. First the Cuban Missile Crisis, now this. How's a kid to get out alive? After a while, I got up and headed down to Neil Shallot's place, where Mrs. Shallot was also in tears, but at least this time I knew why. What I didn't understand for fifty years was the beauty of what I was seeing that day. Here were five women who had never met Jack Kennedy, but they each had enough humanity in them to feel the pain and loss of his death. 
It was and still remains one of the most remarkable things I have ever seen. To know you come from a place where even if people haven't met you yet, they still care about what happens to you. That's a very remarkable thing. It's something I learned that day without really understanding it, yet it would remain the high-water mark for me to measure, from that time forward, everything that passed for human decency during my travels over the next fifty and more years. So what does all this have to do with not going to my high school graduation and turning down the offer of being valedictorian? Well, for starters, I was afraid if I actually was valedictorian and I got up to speak, I'd end up making a mess of it. My stuttering was far from under control, and I knew myself well enough to know I couldn't take that chance. And if I couldn't do what I had been asked to do by my classmates, how could I just go and sit there like a lump and not contribute and make somebody else do that, something I had been asked, but had refused to for seemingly no good reason? It just didn't seem right. And as far as the formal dance, well, I had worked two graduation formals as the MVDHS yearbook photographer, and that's a story all on its own. When I was just a kid, I noticed one morning that my favorite cereal, post-alphabets, that I didn't so much eat every morning as much as I liked to use its letters to attempt to spell my own name. Well, one morning I noticed a contest advertised on the alphabet box. I could answer a few simple questions and maybe win a small plastic 35mm camera if I sent the post company two cereal box tops and 50 cents for shipping and handling. Well, that was something I knew how to do. The back page of most of the comic books I collected were chuck full of great things to send away for. And what Post was asking, well, that was less than the price of a pack of smokes. At the time, 45 cents would get me a pack of McDonald's menthol and two penny matches, which I always needed because I had such trouble lighting them on my windy paper route. And since I made more with my paper route and picking up empty soda pop bottles down Little Mexico way, to say nothing of the fortune my cousin Timmy Conway said we would make sneaking around at night picking dewworms, I figured the 35mm post camera was a real deal. So only a few weeks later, I get this great-looking plastic 35mm camera, and I race down to Lorraine's pharmacy where Ron Briggs, the pharmacist, helped me pick out some film, and over the next few years, Ron and me figured out what I was doing right and doing wrong when it came to taking pictures. Better still, when I get to go to high school and start grade 9, who should I meet but Barney McCaffrey, a supply teacher, who started the photography club. He turned out to be more than just the wild hippie and musician most people know him to be. He had also been a thoroughly trained professional photographer who had worked in New York City for years, and who quickly took me under his wing and taught me all he could about setting up a darkroom, processing my own film, and training my eye to see a story before I clicked a shutter button. Thanks to Barney, I also gained the trust of Mr. Trant, the science department head, who somehow had convinced the powers that be to buy MVDHS a Leica R3 35mm camera, one of the best cameras ever made and worth thousands of dollars even back then. Why and how Barney and John trusted me with that camera, and why and how Joanne Plebin, the school nurse, allowed me to turn the school's sick room into my dark room after classes every day, I'll never know. But by the time I got to the end of grade 11 and 12, I was hard at work shooting both the 1971 and 72 graduation formals, working like a dog, taking thousands of pictures, processing the film, and handing the 8x10s over to the yearbook, who somehow forgot to give me any credit for the work I did. Suffice it to say, by graduation 1973, I was not interested in another graduation formal dance. So that's what had started it all, and kept me from wanting to attend my own graduation. So there I was in late June 1973, looking for something to distract me that weekend. 
along comes Susie Saran. We had started out together in grade one. For whatever reason, she had decided not to go to our graduation formal dance either. Instead, she had volunteered to babysit Joe McLeod's kids that night. Joe was the head of the English department and had worked with Susie, myself, Aloysius Klopchewski, Timmy Conways, and others on an award-winning stage production that we took all the way to the Ontario Drama Finals. Well, that graduation formal dance was not just for students. It was one of the few times Joe could take his wife out for a night of dancing. And so Susie, with Mr. and Mrs. McLeod's permission, invited Aloysius and myself along, not so much to help her babysit as to keep her company. The McLeod children were very young and were in bed and asleep even before the dance was to get underway. I don't remember much about that evening other than sometime after midnight, the McLeods returned home, happily exhausted, and Al and I walked Susie home, and then I walked Al home. I was getting ready to go back on night shift at Murray's Sawmill in Madawaska the following Monday, as I had done the previous two or three summers. And so, though everybody else was ready for some shut-eye by 2 a.m. that morning, I was far from sleepy. I was already converted to keeping my summer night shift hours. So for whatever reason, I left Al's house on Bay Street, the old boys' street, and walked up along Needham until I got to my paper route shortcut over Stafford Mountain. And despite it being probably close to one or two in the morning, I climbed the hill, thinking I'd take in the starlight and lay back on the flat rocks near the poison Zumac and finally figure out whether or not I'd be going to the graduation ceremony that afternoon. When I was just about to sit down on the rocky ledge at my favorite spot near the sumac, I noticed in the half-moonlight what I first thought was a small, round, black mound about the size of a bear cub, or maybe perhaps something dangerously larger. I remember thinking I should walk back down the way I had come up without waking the damn thing, but before I could get away, it reared its head up, only for me to discover it wasn't a cub or mama bear after all. It was Mark Blesky, or as we used to call him, the Marquis, or the Marquis of Barry's Bay. Mark, like Floyd Bentley and Charlie Murray, was one of those wonderful characters I'd grown up with over the years. I'd often met him along my paper route, so instead of being frightened, I sat down beside him, despite his usual pungent odor that he always gave off. Mark was an acquired taste. Some of the local businesses often gave him the bum's rush out their front doors, especially before customers got a whiff of him and left in droves. I, on the other hand, regularly met Mark atop Stafford Mountain, where he and Corky Blaney and John Paul LaHaye would often while away their afternoons, doing what ne'er-do-wells do well, namely pursue their love of drink. I had had a number of somewhat calamitous run-ins with the three of them, sometimes individually, but usually together. On late summer nights, they would sometimes stumble through my parents' backyard, and being awake in my tent, I watched as they mumbled disjointedly along, talking to no one in particular. Occasionally I would see them in town, once curiously gathered around a telephone pole, all on their knees with their hands clasped as if about to receive communion, all three heads leaning against the pole. What kind of religious ceremony it was still makes me wonder, but knowing the Marquis, if asked, I know he would have given an interesting answer. Mark in many ways was greatly misunderstood, if not abused, by many in town, and yet greatly cherished by a few of us who had gotten to know him. I still don't know what tragedy had befallen him in his earlier life to have led him to his shambling condition, but I have rarely met a man so well-read and so able to pick an apt quote out of the thin air. To say he had wit and charm and was endlessly fascinating, at least to a small boy, would be an understatement. He was simply the Marquis of Barry's Bay, a man who, if you were bookish at all, you couldn't help but like— and I was certainly bookish by my final year of high school. In some ways, I saw something of myself in Mark, 
the shambles who couldn't communicate or audibly speak his own name in public at times, but underneath it all, somebody who just desperately wanted only to connect. So Mark and I spent the next hour or so under the starlight of Stafford Mountain, talking and not talking, sometimes just sitting silently, occasionally having him tell me a story about some constellation he noticed above us or quoting a line from Byron Shakespeare or William Butler Yeats. I can't remember much of what he said that night except for one thing that I've carried with me for nearly 50 years. As he rolled back and forth along the rock ledge like a little Buddha, a bottle that was beside him rolled down the hill, making a curious sound, though not smashing. Not knowing if it was empty, I offered to go down and retrieve it, but Mark said there was no need. It was only wine. Only wine, I said. Isn't that the nectar of the gods? Not so, my good man, he responded with his usual congenial lisp, his mess of brown, dirty hair poking out from under his hat that made him look like a cross between W.C. Fields and Uncle Joe from Petticoat Junction. Wine is for women, beer is for pigs, liquor. Liquor is for gentlemen, he said, before pausing and turning his bulbous, pockmarked nose and pellucid blue eyes caught in the half-moonlight towards me. Sadly, if you'll excuse me, I'm not in a position to be much of a gentleman these days. And with that he got up and left, waddling down the far side of the hill where I was eventually to go myself. As I watched him leave, he suddenly turned and thanked me for the conversation. After he left, I stayed and eventually watched the starlight deepen during the darkest hour just before dawn, and with the first light of morning, I finally got up and went off to bed myself. I still hadn't made up my mind about going to the graduation ceremony or not. I felt badly about turning down the valedictorian offer, but I had worked so hard over five years, not so much to fix my stutter as to hide it. I couldn't believe I wouldn't stutter making that speech. Ironically, because I had been out all night, I ended up sleeping until late that afternoon and so missed the graduation ceremony, along with any decision as to whether I should go or not. Still, I would not have given up that last conversation under the stars with Mark Blesky for anything in the world. It turned out to be a defining moment for me. It forced me to say goodbye to my boyhood. Over the next ten or so years, I did learn how to spell and type tolerably well enough to get a job at a newspaper. I even gave up smoking three packs of cigarettes a day because I fell in love and wanted to get married. I never did become much of a public speaker, nor, by Mark Blesky's own measure, did I become much of a gentleman. I rarely drink liquor, but when I do, I quietly raise a toast to that one true gentleman I got to know, if only a little, the Marquis of Barry's Bay. No truer gentleman ever spoke with such eloquence to the soul of a struggling young boy trying to become a man. He made me believe that he had been just like me, once a boy of summer, albeit from an earlier time. Only he also convinced me I might be lucky enough not to follow his own path after a similar tragedy as happened to him might some day befall me, and perhaps I would be luckier still not to have had the rotten luck of a Terry Luckasavage or a Sean Murray or even a John Fitzgerald Kennedy. There, but for the grace, if not the fickle hand of God. That was Barry Conway reading Stafford Mountain Starlight, the last of his four personal essays that make up The Boys of Summer, a memoir about growing up in Barry's Bay during the 1960s and early 1970s. One final note. Today, we've heard about The Boys of Summer, but we here at the Apianco Line sincerely believe that there is an even better show waiting to be written called The Girls of Summer. So start sharpening those pencils, ladies, or get out that old typewriter, especially those of you who were taught by Pearl Orr. Time to get cracking. We await your manuscript. I'm Kristen Marchant, and for the producer of the Apiango line, Barry Conway, we both would like to wish you a very good day 
and God bless.